A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and by Dominic Fifield of The Athletic. Stand by for a revealing conversation with Frank Lampard that touches on regret and renewal at Everton. That's a club with great traditions, but is that enough in the modern era? Newcastle are starting to flex their financial and political muscle in siding with the so-called top six to form an effective veto of Premier League decisions. So Johnny, is this how a Super League breakaway starts? It could well be, Mike. I've often thought that the most likely route to a Super League is actually within the Premier League. The European Super League was... As a project, I suppose it was a very grandiose thing, and we saw the sheer public fury and the political issues to circumnavigate with UEFA for the clubs. But within Britain, I think within the Premier League, it would be a lot easier for those biggest clubs to grab money and power. And in fact, it's it's been happening for years under our noses. They are just chipping away every little by little at the at the margins of income they get compared to the other clubs you know there's been adjustments to the foreign tv income the way that that's now skewed more towards the bigger clubs and i just see that continuing and continuing and speaking to chairman it wouldn't seem that the failed european super league has in any way inhibited those big clubs around the table they're as hungry as ever for dominance for money and power and now we have newcastle in the mix clearly that brings their number up to seven and and that puts them um into that level of veto that you mentioned mike because it's a 14 and 6 vote and then there's odd things like you know nottingham forest saying that they want to vote with the the big clubs there's always sort of one one or two little rogues that i think the big clubs feel they can buy off or or pick off i just see over the next five to ten years that further chipping away at the income and of the, the the power and maybe what we'll get to i mean it was a horrible concept at the heart of the european super league but you know will we get to an idea of permanent members is that where we might push towards permanent members who take a greater share of everything than anyone else and it, it would happen slowly and it would happen without that kind of big public outcry that we saw with the european super league because sadly that is how these power grabs really occur you know, not with a big event, but but little by little. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll dwell a little on the nature of the Saudi investment a little later, Don. But I suppose off the back of Johnny's comments there, what we're talking about is a closed shop, essentially. Now, that's completely alien to our game, both, you know, well, certainly traditionally and culturally. Um, do you think the fans would want that? Surely jeopardy of rele- relegation is part and parcel of English football. I, I, I'm sure the vast majority of of fans, match-going fans certainly, would rail against it. You know, there's something very intriguing about a relegation battle, unless you're in it, obviously. <laughs> um, I mean, it is. it does provide as much drama towards the back end of a season as the title race. So I think, yeah, it, it, you're absolutely right. It is against everything that we're that we stand for and, and that, that culturally we're used to and, and enjoy. Obviously, when you've got a, so many, for example, American owners in the Premier League who aren't used to that concept and, and can see the jeopardy in it, quite obviously, then it's it's not a huge surprise that, that you know there may be a move within the organisation, within the division, to go another way. I do find it fascinating, the whole Newcastle and the seventh club element, because I think when Newcastle were taken over and looked like the next money bags on the rank... The, the traditional established six probably initially thought, my word, we've got a, bit, a real competitive rival here. And then very, very quickly, they've also recognised it as a potential ally and someone that can, as you say, warp that vote and make it into a, a 7-13 to, to ensure decisions go their way effectively. And it's it, the dynamics of that are quite interesting. I, I do wonder also whether whether the Super League concept, it's a bit soon for Newcastle at the moment. I mean, they're still developing and establishing themselves and they'll want to win, you know, conventional competitions first, I would have thought, if you see what I mean, and the, the win, win it the old way, win, win the Premier League, reach the Champions League in the way that we've, you know, we qualify at the moment. But then further down the line, obviously, yeah, I, I, you can see the, the direction of traffic. Yeah, when we look at the Saudi investment, Yasir al-Rumiyan, who oversees that investment for the Saudis, he's talking about already turning the original £350 million investment into something worth about £3.5 which just happens to be the sort of price that, that Chelsea fetched. Mm-hmm. They're also spending $2.3 billion in sponsorship, mainly in the Saudi league. That gives you, Johnny, doesn't it, a really vivid idea of, one, the business principles mm. behind this, and two, the amount of money they've got. Yeah, I think what it does is it, it puts Newcastle into a context. And that context is, as you suggest, Mike, it, it's a programme of investment and it's a, it's a programme of growth. And there's a huge, huge sort of game being played here. I think what we've got to bear in mind is 2030 and the, the, the Saudi bid for a World Cup that's coming. And that might be worth 40 billion, that bid. And then you've got to wind back and look at Qatar and what they've done in the run-up to 2022, which was to get the World Cup, but then on the back end of that to invest in the Qatari Stars League, I think is a version of the Premier League. Huge investment into clubs there with, with top European managers and players, Javi Hernandez being their sort of flag bearer. Investment into the Aspire Academy and then investment, of course, into PSG as their sort of flagship and the acquiring of Messi and uh, Neymar and keeping Mbappe on a huge contract. It's all towards this kind of building towards this 2022 peak, World Cup peak, where they arrive at the World Cup 
with a flourishing domestic league, the richest club in the world, the biggest stars, and they've arrived at the table. And I think there's something similar going on with Saudi. Newcastle being that club vehicle, this only being the start of the investment there. And then a bit like the Qataris, also backfilling it with, with investment into their own domestic league. And we will certainly see the, the players and the managers starting to arrive there. I was talking to a, a coach who's based out in, in Saudi at the moment and it, within one of those clubs in, in the Saudi Domestic League. And he mentioned, he, he well, he didn't mention, he stressed how everything is geared towards 2030. Mm. They're talking about the stadium, the redevelopment. They, they're talking about raising the quality of the league. And, and don't get me wrong, the, the quality at the moment is not good. It's a sort of mishmash of journeyman footballers who have played around the world and and domestic talent and it's it's not a level that it needs to be but but they're you know that everything everything is looking towards 2030 and so it's no surprise when you hear that you know crown prince bin salman has you know seen boxing bout in in jeddah with jenny infantino that's the type of thing it's it's all sort of mm. moving in that direction to get that world cup bid sorted Mm. You know, Newcastle have gone softly, softly in that first year. Uh, and I suppose Bruno Guimaraes is the, the poster boy for that type of strategy. Johnny, where do you think they go from there? Will they accelerate? You know, what will, for instance, Dan Ashworth's role be in all this? Yeah, well, I mean, the presence of Dan Ashworth does suggest that a measured approach is going to, to be the way. And I think they're going to accelerate, but try and avoid the sort of crazy Chinese Super League approach of, of just, you know, front-ending it with, with two or three massive stars and nothing else and keep doing what they're doing. And, and what they're doing echoes the early years of Abu Dhabi at Manchester City. There's nothing more dangerous or powerful than a lot of money spent well. And that's what they've done so far. They've worked out what tier they're at, for me, Newcastle. They've realised they're not they're not obviously not top tier yet, but the money gets a middle tier. And what they've done is bought the, the very best of the middle tier talent available, I would say, and players at the right age. And the future for them is, as Man City did, just making those signings better and better and better. You know, City going from the Gareth Barrys to the Yaya Touris to the David Silvers. It just, I, I, that is now the template for success rather than jumping in paying a billion for a 34-year-old Messi and then seeing the whole thing go to ruin. And Dan Ashworth will continue that measured recruitment. They've done more in the first year than I thought they would, Newcastle. This has been very wise in their investment. It already seems a very convincing project rather than a, you know, I think we accept it already that Newcastle are a good team when they're going places. And that wasn't a given despite all the money. Mm. Well, the the next place they're going is Old Trafford on Sunday. Manchester United, you're Eric Ten Hag, Dom. Would you start <laughs> the player? Would you start the player? You've got more hair than him, by the way. Um, Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> would you start the player that we, I suppose, we have to refer to as CR700 now? <laughs> uh, look, I, I still think it probably depends on, on availability and, you know, whether... There are other options. Martial's absence, presumably through injury, is is a is a blow actually to United because to have that the the, the quick and you know fleet footed, fluid forward line was was actually serving them quite well in fixtures other than the derby. So, if availability forces this hand, and it's not a bad backup to have, is it? Let's be honest, a, a player with seven hundred career goals to his name, and a player that is clearly still hungry and 
and eager and desperate to be involved at United and at, at first team level and high profile fixtures as well. So it's it's no bad thing. But I think the way that things are going with Eric Ten Hard, I mean, it's it's in the future, you know, with the players that are available to him, I suspect it will be going a different way. I think it will be more, it will be that more fluid, youthful forward line. Jaden Sancho, Fleetfoot on one side, Marcus Rashford, a figure like Martial through the middle. Some, you know, speed and and, and that type of quality in, involved rather than the Ronaldo. But my word, he's not a bad backup to have. That's true. You know, speaking of Rashford there, Johnny, do you detect any signs that he's on the rebound a bit? Yeah, I, 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 that's almost top of the list. The positives of the Eric Ten Hag era is, is the, the rebound or the reboot of, of Rashford. I think the gifts, of, they never went away, but clearly a player who depends a lot on, I'm not sure if confidence is exactly the right word, but I, I, you could see that last season when, when things were difficult, Rashford was was spending a lot of time within himself, if that makes sense. There was a kind of troubled, inhibited nature. I remember speaking to Wayne Rooney about this and saying, I haven't just haven't seen him smile for a long time. You know, he knows he knows Mark as well. And that's all back. It, there's an outward look in Rashford, and he's delivering with those those gifts again. And I think it's a shame for him that Martial is so in and out. Because one thing that United haven't managed to do in the last five or six years is develop partnerships and combinations across the pitch because it's been such a farrago. And Martial and Rashford are always good together. They were what Louis van Gaal was building around back in the midst of time. And Martial, with his sort of maddening, ebbing form and an injury record, just hasn't been reliable enough to put on the pitch the whole time. But when they play together, my goodness, they are two players that spark off each other. And if Martial can be fit and play a run of games under Ten Hag. I think that you'll see Rashford getting better and better as well. Mm. Well, despite Sunday's defeat by Manchester United, Frank Lampard is quietly rebuilding Everton and restoring his reputation. As he's discovered, the harshest lessons are the most valuable. So, Frank, thank you very much for joining us. Much appreciated as ever. I want to draw down on the wisdom, if you like, of a legendary NFL coach, Bill Walsh. One of his great maxims was, to succeed, you must fail. Can you relate to that? Yeah, absolutely can. I think in all walks of life, I think it's a very general statement, but I think... I felt it many a time through my career and it's very easy to sort of brush over a career and look at the highlights and within the good highlights there are millions of things, hundreds of things that you um, can consider as failures during a playing career. So that I was very aware of it as a player but I think as a manager and a coach where you, the sole responsibility is yours for the team, you feel it's a burden. And I think how most coaches are or should be because you have to self-analyse all the time. So you should be sort of ultra-critical of yourself and look at everything like that, which I, I certainly did from the start. That I realised that I failed probably every day to a degree and certainly did in my early days in management at Derby. I walked in completely fresh and sort of not naive. That would be to overstate it. I know football, I knew football, but so many parts of football that are not things you do on the training ground as an individual player. So it's trial and error, it's failure, 
And one of my biggest things about management is, and people that, that are either really successful in, in it or not, or start to get on the ladder and then come off of it, is that you can never think that you've cracked it and never think that you can stop learning. So every failure is an opportunity to learn something. Sounds a bit cliche, but I think it's absolutely true. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, all coaches tend to be very, very, you know, almost obsessive self-evaluators. Mm. When you're out of the game, you know, following Chelsea, what were your thought processes? How long did it take you to get over that, the blow of being let go by a club that meant so much to you and almost re-energised you for what you're doing now? Well, the period was probably, it was around a year. But when you're out of the job, you don't know that. So it's hard to look too far forward. So you do spend a lot of time looking backwards. And the first part, it can be quite tough. It is tough. I don't care who you are, unless you decide and you're hanging up your, your managerial boots, you lose your job that you love doing. Maybe some people love it more than others in terms of it can be tough at different times. But it becomes an obsession. It becomes something that you that takes over your life and then you take a hit in your pride, I guess, is the biggest thing. And there are so many details around that which I won't go into because it takes so long, but you have all these different emotions about sort of regret, disappointment, anger, you know, all those sort of things. And in the first couple of months, I think they're probably by far and away the bigger, the negative sides are the bigger ones that come out. And then they start to subside a little bit and you start to sort of think about positive things. and even negative things that were there in the beginning become positive or, or you just become, I think with time, much more reflective. And I found it in a positive way. So things I thought straight away, I could have done, should have done that, that went wrong or an anger at somebody. For starters, the things I thought I didn't do so right in the first life, if I look at them now, I go, no, no, that were right, as I believe. And some of the things that you actually didn't see in that first moment, you, look, you see now and go, actually, that was the important thing. The biggest realization I had, and it probably took me a few months to probably have it of not having a job, was making sure that I absolutely focused on the future and got my own balance right across the board. First thing was family balance, because when you, when you work in, you, you put it to the side a lot. And you, your work-life balance goes out, out of kilter, doesn't it? It's really hard to manage. It's really, really hard to manage. But you can try harder than I was trying. I was absolutely engulfed in it in the end of my Chelsea days, and it wasn't good for me. It wouldn't have been good for my family very much. It certainly wasn't good for me to come home and be working through the night and stuff like that. You need a break. So that was the first thing that really hit me. And then the second thing was to just go over things in a much more simplistic manner and understand that football will always give you different problems that look slightly different. So it was just trying to sort of like look at things as they had been, as they were. For instance, like in the beginning, I'll look at sort of like personal relationships that, you know, with players that weren't playing and that were obviously a bit difficult in the end there because when you're not playing internationals every week, it can become a hard one. And you start to be a little bit more balanced about the whole thing and understand that those issues might come again. How will I deal with it? Because it's easy with hindsight and there will always be more of these in the future. So you just, you just take the opportunity to learn. And by the time... The Everson job came around nearly a year later. I was more than ready. I wasn't chomping at the bit. I was quite relaxed at home and happy, but the opportunity was too good for me to turn down and I was ready. Yeah, managers talk about almost like the weight of collective responsibility on them. You know, you're playing God with people's lives to a, yeah. a large degree. When you reflect on that, do you also look at the personal side in as much as that, you know, how much it takes out of you as a person? Yeah, I do, and I feel that all the time, and that's why those moments to recharge 
are so big because you know you can probably see it visually on us managers there's no there's no doubt you know you get into the job your hair starts to go grey out or whatever it is there is the, there are these before and after photographs yeah, aren't there but you know and that's probably the in- intensity of the job but maybe that's what happens to every 40 to 50 year old as well which is we're in the public eye <laughs> and people like hone in on it and it's, it's a savage world at times but that's fine. I'm, luckily, I don't have a huge ego on that front. It's more the day-to-day, how it can affect you. And some of the biggest learnings I had were to give myself more time to out of football to really appreciate my family rather than just be present but not present. I think that was important for me and my family. And also to embrace the staff that I've got with me, make sure they're the right staff, make sure they can do things that I can't do or I'm not so good at or they're better than me at in their own specialist part of that, that field. And also make sure they're positive people. Because I think the biggest drainer in life is negativity. I think it's whether like my home life wouldn't be negative in that sense. I'm lucky I've got real strength there at home. But in the workplace, you're so you're working so many hours together in so many difficult situations and going through so many failures. When I say failure, like a draw at home could be a failure, a loss when you expect to win, or even a win that performance wasn't great. That if you're negative and you, you first sit down in the room and everyone's like, that wasn't good enough, that wasn't good enough, that wasn't good enough, you're drained and then you carry it around you. So you leave that office, you go into the next one, you go into the canteen, you dress the players, and negativity is dragging everyone down very quickly. I'm a big believer in, in a positive mindset. Now, you're working with a specific generation of individuals. Mm. Modern leadership within football, sport, or wherever, needs to be a bit more nuanced now, doesn't it? Because yeah. of the people you're dealing with. Have you changed the way that you deal with people consciously because of the you know, relative youth? Yeah, I have. I think it's a skill, and who knows how good I am at it. I think you'd be, you'd be judging that in various ways. One is in results, because the better you handle this new breed of player, probably the more success. It will be pretty directly relative to what you do, because you want to get the best out of players, so that you have to be on a level with them. There's also other relationships, which are the personal ones that go on outside it. So not just results, but how you enjoy it, how you can improve players and people within that, because I think that's a responsibility of yours as well as a manager these days. So you really have to just sort of check yourself and try and move with the times and try and get better. It's one of, I think, the the most difficult things for ex-players to do is more than probably the tactical side of the game is to understand that sort of people skills side of the game. What what motivates the modern player? Sure, because... Because what does motivate them? Is it money? Well, you know, that's a given pretty much now, isn't it? Yeah, so that that is a given to a degree, but it's still there. I still think it's a bit relative, but it's still there. You know, if a player's earning this and their teammates earning that, it can be competition within the squad. But the days of kind of talking about, oh, they're driving flashy cars, I think are gone. If you get caught up in that, I think you're just a bit of a dinosaur that doesn't get it. I think you you just have to move away from it and understand that that's there. And they'll all have different things that motivate them. It might be good old school, want to be the best player they can be for the right reasons. It might be because they want to had the biggest following on social media. It might be because of their family motivate them after, you know, typically it's an easy example, but like a Seamus Coleman would be a family man, it's clear. He wants to work for himself, for his family first and foremost. But the players are changing from the Seamuses and I think it's just, the, the sooner you can get to try and understand what motivates them, the better. And I think they also have to feel from you their respect. And the biggest thing for me is communication. And I think that's probably always been there, but I think these, younger players now in the workplace needs to know why you want them to do something to need to know how to need to get, have, give them an input into how that's done and so you have a bit of trial and error there because maybe they're young boys it's easy for me to analyze the game back and see what i think they should have done 
to, I have to sort of sit with them and go through that and show them the wide angle and show them my feelings and ask them a question about it. And I think if you do that in the workplace and you communicate and they feel like they're engaging with you, I think you've probably cracked a lot of it in terms of the workplace. Trying to understand how they live and how they see their life is not easy. It's not easy because I'm 44 now and I, I try and put myself into my, their, their shoes. Like, what, would, what would I have done at 21? But my life and surroundings look completely different. We didn't have social media. Everything, the situation was different. Again, you talk about failing all the time. I think you have small fouls with these things, but you try and create an environment where the players feel comfortable. They feel like they can communicate with me and with my staff. And then you just try and get the best out of them. Is it fair to say that you're trying to balance that generation or the habits of that generation with the values of maybe the generation that you represent, more old school. You know, I'm thinking here, you know, someone who embodies that is a kind of Cody, that type of be the best I can be type of player, yeah. maybe James Tarkovsky, yeah. people like that. Yeah. Was that a conscious thing that you did over the summer that you always needed to inject that type of character into your dressing room? Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt it from coming here. A really good group of lads in the main, but there was something for me that was missing in terms of a bit of leadership and direction. And it's not, it's not a huge criticism of the lads. They are what they are. Leaders look different in the modern day, but the ones you've mentioned there in terms of Connor and Taki, they don't actually. They look like a bit of a throwback in terms of how they train, how they affect others around them. So I think your first statement is bang on, you know, the, the modern world that's moving very quickly, trying to keep hold of the things, because I think it can get lost in a young player. I think sometimes their surroundings, their friends, the agents, the this and that can talk a lot about it around them outside the workplace, which is not positive. And so they, to bring them in here and for them to sense a value or a behaviour or something from myself and my staff and this experienced players in the building is a big deal. And then they follow, you hope. And that's definitely been a change that we've been able to make this summer with personnel. And sometimes changing personnel is the only way. The nature of the club, it seems to me, is, is unchanged. It's still you know, the people's club mm. uh, line, isn't it? When you avoided relegation against Palace, that game, you, know, you looked around in all that mayhem. What did you see? Did you see a spirit of a club and a community? Yeah, I saw that then and I saw that in the in the run-up to staying up because the fans kicked into gear and you know, did these big welcomes for us every game. It was pretty unique. I don't think I've seen that anywhere. I don't think it's happened anywhere to that level in the Premier League. So I saw it coming and then that, that gave me a massive sense of responsibility to try and deliver because the last thing you want to do is take the club down. Outside of Everton, I think it was a big talk. You know, Everton can't go down, shouldn't go down. There was no reason why we shouldn't go down in football terms. But it was just up to us to fight and show that. And on that day, I saw the fans' reaction I saw players and people who work at the club's reaction, work at the club who worked a few years. I, I'm not sure how many teams in the Premier League will have as many Evertonians. When I say Evertonians, I mean people that, that live and die at the club, working for the club. You know, Everton tattoos are, are everywhere here. You know, kit men, medical staff, Goodison. It is a very tight-knit club. And I understood very at that point what it meant to so many people and I understood what it meant to my chairman and my uh, chief executive, Denise, and, and um, Bill Kemright, tears in their eyes and these things. So I understood that, and then I just thought, OK, well, where do we go from here? And there's a lot of work to be done, very obvious, but the size of the club and history and the passion was never more evident for me than then on, that, on that day. Because, and I know this is sort of howling at the moon to a degree, but I will miss Goodison mm. when it's gone yeah. because of what that is, that sure. experience. Yeah. Would you miss it? Yeah, 
I will miss it. So I've got two sides to this one. I will miss it. I've always appreciated the play at it as a player. Didn't like it in terms of it was hostile, a difficult environment to go to. And, and that's what you want as a player, that's what the Premier League's about, isn't it? And then having now managed here, I feel what it means to the, to the fans. But I also feel, and I don't know if the timing of when I've got here, is to, and maybe because we were in a rut, there's no doubt, you know, there was a, a disconnect slightly and a direction issue, uh, which meant where we were and we fought to stay in the league. I also think that there's a real positive thing that could be happening here and maybe the, the, the well, maybe the change of the stadium's happening. I think there's a progressive side of the club, I think it's a good thing. And the most important thing then is that the club involved the fans in that process and I believe that's what's happening. And I, I know it's what's happening from the hard work that's done by the incredible people here at the club, above me and around me, that are trying to show the fans that the people clubs remain, that the heart of the club remains. We're moving to a stadium that will help us progress. And can we bring the feeling of Goodison mm. to the new stadium? And we work together, we can do that. I noticed on social media that you brought in, when you were having your team photos, you brought in a local mental health charity. Yeah. One of the guys sure. spoke to the group which is an, an admirable thing because the mental health side of football is, is almost the thing that people don't want to talk about. Yeah. Does football do enough, in your view, to look after its own? Everton do, in my opinion, because I can't take credit for that, for the lad that came in the photo. That was a, an Everton foundation and, and the work that we do in the community, which is amazing. I've taken small parts in at the back end of last season of work they do here with men and women coming here and who have had lots of difficulties on the mental health side and the foundation do incredible work. So I think Everton do and that's why I think people call it the people's club and I don't think there's any club in the Premier League. In my opinion, I've not been at a million clubs but just sensing it, I think we're right up there with the best in dealing with those things. Does the game in general do enough? Not yet. I think it's something that we're all becoming more aware of. Prince William is involved in amazing charities and now some bigger names. It's much easier to speak about mental health issues. I'm pleased finally as well that even players who were supposed to be immune to mental health issues back in the day, you earn too much money to have a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. That old chestnut's gone away, thank goodness. And it's going to be something that we need to continue working on to give support to people, to make people very aware of what it is and probably to understand, if we're brutally honest, that we all not suffer from it to a, a degree. but that it's there, because in, in my years growing up, it wasn't talked about, in fact, it was just seen as a weakness. It just meant you're weak, you had any mental health issues. When you look at the state of development of your squad, or the evolution of your squad, it's probably a statement of the obvious, that the first thing was, okay, let's stay in the league, mm. then build on from there. Where are you, and, and you know, when will a true Frank Lampard Everton team turn up or turn out? Um, well, we're progressing for sure from where we were when we, when we managed to stay up. There were certain things that needed to change. You've touched on them already with us, but one was a culture change. I felt that from when I came in and I probably had to shelve some things last year because it was only on pitch success. And sometimes to deal with cultural issues and values and behaviours and a direction, they can sometimes make you hit a wall in the short term, is how I felt. You try and address things. Because sometimes you get kicked back, is my point. And I think that was one of my experiences at Chelsea, is that I tried to broach what I felt were cultural issues, which I understood from my playing days, which I understood from the time that I was away. And when I came back, I probably had ideas on that. And I got kicked back, and it was negative. And then it can sort of spill over into performance. 
here I didn't want to do that in year one, well, year one, that three, four-month period. When we went away in the summer and came back, I was quite strong on that with the players. We needed to change some personnel to bring in players that could reflect the changes that I wanted to make on and off the pitch. We did that. We've touched on that as well. Mm. And I think the, in terms of can we be really strategic and fortunately came in at a time where we, Kevin Furwell came in. So the connection from me to Kevin, to the chairman, to Denise and to the owner is for me as good as it's been. People tell me that and it feels that way. And only when you're aligned can you make those moves in the right direction because otherwise everyone will have a different idea. And at the moment, we have a similar idea of what we want to be as a club culturally and how we want. I'm really pleased with the progression we made there. On the pitch, I'm pleased. But I do know that there's, there's a long way to go. So I don't know when I'll ever be able to answer your question of when you'll see my team. I've seen glimpses of it already in the last three or four games as we speak. Performances against Liverpool, against West Ham, against Southampton, against Leeds. These performances this season. But in terms of the style I want to play and the consistency I want to play, I think we're still quite away from that, if I'm honest. Mm. When you look at your role, there is always a, a moment in football where people provide instant judgment on you. Now, so you had that at Chelsea. Are you judged as a prominent former player, or, or you know, you can widen it to other prominent former players who've gone into management, are you judged by different standards? Are there different emotions at play? A bit of envy, maybe? Yeah, I would say that's human nature. And I think if you're talking about media, maybe ex-players or elements of the media or probably maybe a cultural thing sometimes where you've played at a high level over a period of time, then maybe it's our culture here sometimes to go, OK, you better really show me you're a good coach then. You know? <laughs> and maybe then you're at a bit of a negative starting point. I think some English and British coaches maybe have experienced that and are experiencing that. And, and the difficulty with that is that you have to keep your mouth shut and your head down as much as you can and just and get on with it and do your job. Because to break that mould or to break that, you'll only do it by performance. The hard thing with that sometimes is, is perception and nobody knows your job unless they're in it and around it with you. And that, that's one of the biggest learnings for me as a manager. Because I worked in the media for a year and it was my job to sort of comment on it. Mm. And so you could easily get sucked into, uh, well, I can't understand why he picked that player over that player or why that formation over that formation. And then when you t start the job and you come to a high-pressure job and all of them are high-pressure, whether you're working in Premier League or whether you're working in Div 2, all have relative problems. You see them, you have to deal with them, and people on the outside don't. So I think it can be a bugbear, I'm guessing, of a lot of us managers because you go, it's very easy for you to comment in hindsight after a match about that decision that I had to make mm -hmm. considering lots of variables that happened in the week. So there are lots of things like that. And I think it's important you sort of stay away from getting too deep in that conversation. It's important that you just keep working in the right direction. I love coaching. I was pleased that when I started managing, I wanted to be a coach, not a manager, because I felt that's the way the game was going. If it was going away from a, a manager that oversees, I thought, a situation and has coaches that do the... I, I felt like working on the pitch next to the players was the only way an ex-player can prove to those players that not only have you played the game at a good level, but you're there coaching it with them. Mm. I think to oversee as a manager is, is, is not easy with the modern player. They need to fill you next to them, improving them and helping them and just get on with that. And then I think you hope that your work can take you in the right direction. So if there are any doubters, then you prove them wrong. Yeah. There's a final question. As a player, you were known for being you know, obsessive in your desire to achieve and you know, reach your natural limits. Now, I'm sure that survived the transition to management. How can you be better in your new job, in your new role? 
I think there's so many ways I can be and it'll only be work and time. I talk about the squad, it's a question I get asked a lot after and because of the way I was brought up in my career, the, the real positive behind my career, I know that, that got me there and, and the building blocks of my work ethic. And so I can only improve to the level I want with that same work ethic, but directed in a different way because it's, it's much harder being a manager. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not physically harder. It's mentally and consuming nature of the job, but also the elite sport and the, the percentages for me of success and how you get to it are so detailed and so tough that you have to work constantly to get towards them. And you look at the best out there, they've done that work and they've, they've learned and they've continued to learn and they've repeated and then they've got something slightly wrong and they've got even better. And that's what I want to work towards. So I'm pleased that that obsessive nature stayed. I think it's impossible to do this job without it. But I'm always learning. I learn from my inspiration. People ask me, who are the managers that inspired you? And as much as Jose Mourinho did, and I'll always answer that, it was 20 years ago, whatever, nearly. So for me to talk about, you know, an effect Jose Mourinho had on me 20 years ago, is not necessarily relative to what's now. I can learn as much as I can, and this is no disrespect, I'll always say Jose, because he, he changed my career, but I could learn as much by listening to a podcast of a manager working in Div 1 now as I can from something that happened 20 years ago. And it might be something that I agree with, I disagree with, I think somewhere in the middle about, it just helps me a tiny bit in my job. And I love things like that. So as long as I can keep learning, I think I've got, I've got that chance. Well, Frank, thanks for your time. Thank you. Well, that was a very reflective conversation, intriguing in many ways. Johnny, you were at uh, Finch Farm just before me interviewing Amadou Onana. Now, that's a remarkable story. But also, I thought it gave another insight into Lampard's people-based coaching. Yeah, it was quite powerful, the testimony that I, I had from Onana about Frank. And it's fascinating listening to your interview with him there, Mike, and, and hearing how sort of, I guess, kind of reflective and balanced and and human Frank is sounding these days and probably always has been, but you can see there's a, there's a real maturity and reflection that's gone in there. That's maybe softened his management as well. And speaking to a Nana who, you know, for 21 is an incredibly impressive young man with five languages told me he also wants to, you know, he's halfway through learning Spanish and wants Portuguese. So he's, he's got his eyes on seven already. Um, and then, of course, the Scouse were through in the mix. You know, a musician, he's still studying for a Belgian educational diploma, just a, a really switched on and intelligent kid and someone that's made very clear career decisions throughout his, his short career already, jumped from Hoffenheim's youth set up to Hamburg to Lille and then was telling me the next step was always going to be the Premier League and what he's always done is thought about development and there were several clubs who wanted this guy because he's got such a, a range of Premier League ready skills. But he said Frank Lampard was was the reason he came to to Everton, that Frank was on the phone to him all summer, interested in him, not just as a player, but as a human being, outlined where he could go on the pitch. But more than that, was continually asking him what he needed. What, what you know, what can I do to help you? And then he said, and that hasn't stopped since I arrived. You know, I've got a relationship with him where he's checking in on me all the time. He's trying to make sure everything's right for me as a person. And he said, I've never had a manager like this. He's a great human being. And Onana, you know, he's got a life, bundle life experiences that I think would 
probably give him a a reasonable reasonable tools to judge the quality of a human being because he's had some bad coaching experiences too. And he just raved about Lampard in a really genuine way. And that's before we even talked about the football. And, and Frank's got a very sort of appealing development plan for him as well around bringing out his attacking side and, and teaching him how to arrive on the edge of the box and score the way that Frank did in his own career. And um, I, I went away thinking, first of all, Everton have signed a brilliant character here in this kid. And if that's their template, then they're going in the right direction. And secondly, how important, how central Lampard is to the whole project. Mm. What struck me was how obvious, Dom, the blow of losing his job at Chelsea was to him. Can you compare the player and the manager that you work closely with at Chelsea with the manager who's in basically the second phase of his job now at Everton, having saved them from relegation? Well, I think Johnny touched on it before. I think he's he's more mature as a manager now than he than he was at Chelsea. I think possibly we underestimated the the toll that job had on him, probably through the weight of expectation, given his his playing record at Chelsea and the fact that he came back as his returning hero with at a difficult point in the club's recent history, given the the FIFA transfer ban that was imposed that summer and after the the real acrimony of Maurizio Sarri's tenure at, at the club. He was supposed to have this sort of healing effect, and it, to a certain extent, he did. And and you know, we talk about developing Anana. He developed and helped develop players like Mason Mount and Reese James, who are now mainstays of this Chelsea and England team. But I think that the sheer weight of expectation for a manager that was, you know, at a fledgling stage in his career at that level, really did take its toll. He he seemed scarred by it all towards the end, wearing that sort of haunted look that a lot of Chelsea managers had under the previous regime <laughs> from what I saw at Everton I mean like I, I, I went to the the game that you you talk about in the in, in the interview against Palace at the end of last season and that the sense of joy and relief within that stadium it, that was evident with him as well he I mean he really wore that it was he was he was look he was adored when he went to Chelsea when he came back to Chelsea everybody loved him but they loved him because they knew him at Everton I think there was there was probably when he was appointed a, a little a level of suspicion there at some point you know how good is this guy is, is he going to be able to to do a job away from his normal surroundings in an environment that he that he knows so well and okay they had very short term objectives last season just stay in the division but he achieved that and then I think it's testament to the impact that he's had that even when they weren't winning many games at the start of this season, where they weren't losing many, there was a sense of fun around the club and joy around the club. The supporters actually bought into what he was saying and what he was doing and the way he was acting and the the whole fact that the, the club had sort of remained galvanised, the fan base had remained galvanised from the end of last season. And I think that that's very encouraging for Frank Lampard and shows that actually he can make this his own. He, he can have a success here in an area that, that maybe, I, mean, I don't think Frank Lampard ever thought that he could, he would thrive on Merseyside as a manager. I don't think when he set out, that was what he was going to do at all. But, but actually he's, he's a bit more worldly wise now. He's taken the positives from that time at Chelsea and he's really poured them into, into the job he's doing at Everton. And he, it's good to see. It is good to see. Yeah, it was interesting. I thought when he talked about, you know, he'd never seen so many Everton tattoos around a football, <laughs> tattoos around a football yeah, well, club that's, before. That's exactly it, isn't it? That's that's Everton all over. It is, but there's also a practical side of this, Johnny. You know, I, th- I thought 
his logic about you know attitudes to prominent players in management was was spot on. Do you think it's significant that he had to prove himself on the grass as a coach to his players instead of just sort of swallowing in as this you know Premier League great player? I I found that enormously interesting because actually if you look at his generation of of players, there's a bit of a divide at the moment. Some of them are going down the I'm a manager route and Frank is on the side of wanting to be on the grass as well. Gerard, you know, bring out the whole comparison. He's the manager route. He gets other people to do his coaching. He wants to take that view. But I find it fascinating to hear he felt that unless he was there with the players doing the coaching beside them on the grass, then he couldn't have the same sort of power to demand things in terms of performance on, on a match day. And that's, there's an intelligence to that. I think there's an empathy to that, a sense. I think Don touched on it of also feeling they need to prove himself somewhere and not rest on a reputation or laurels, but show in a new environment, coaching abilities, and I just think I think it's all part of how I think Frank really gets the job and gets the club, and that really came across in the interview too. His sort of sense of perspective on it all. I think he really gets Everton, but I think he really gets what he needs to put in for this younger generation of players to be an effective coach. And and it's no surprise he's such an intelligent guy. He's he's done the thinking, and he's worked it out. I think. Mm, yeah, well, I suppose what you're referring to there is this importance that he's placing on old school values. What do you make of the balance of that team? Obviously, it's a team in transition, probably needs something more up front, Dom, but can you see signs of promise there? Yeah, absolutely. And it's and, and it's those old school values and, and the, the building a foundation that has been at the core of it. To have Tarkovsky and Cody in there at the centre-halves, it just makes it's transformative. It just gives them a rock on which they can build because everything about them was... There, there was a an unpredictability about their back line previously, and that was like you know that was that was partly because of injuries and, and issues like that. But but I think you've got something solid like that. Two players who are seasoned Premier League talents now, no nonsense, but leaders as well. People who will command respect in that dressing room and 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 tell people if they're if they're straying, they're not get fully committed if you know, if standards are dropping on the training ground or in the dressing room, it'll actually be Tarkovsky and Cody, I would imagine, that actually go out there and tell them rather than Frank Lampard. And if if you've got that, those two allies in the dressing room, then it makes a a massive, massive difference and probably makes your life as a head coach stroke manager much easier. They just look like Everton again. They just look like Everton and Cody and and Tarkovsky go back to a Goff and a Weir or or a David Unsworth or whatever at the back and the whole thing, that, that's what's so impressive about what I mean by him getting the club. Whatever Everton is, he's distilled it and put it on the pitch again. Mm. When we look at Everton as a club, they would obviously consider themselves to be natural contributors to, say, a top eight. But we talked earlier on about you know the bigger clubs beginning to draw up the drawbridge. Manchester City, you know, by common consent, Dom, they're going to walk the league. Look at the individual components, if we could a bit. Phil Foden, who was saved for the last sort of 10, 12 minutes in Tuesday night's uh, draw in Copenhagen. He needs to be incorporated into the England team, doesn't he? The starting team. And do you think his future will be in central midfield, as as Kevin De Bruyne suggests? Yeah, possibly in, in, a, in that kind of, of central midfield that 
in a team that's going to have all the ball. Um, I mean, I don't think you could plonk him in a in in every midfield in the Premier League and and expect it to to work necessarily. Although he's he's got amazing qualities in possession. I think he will be in that England team. I, I suspect that he will be be starting. He'll probably be starting in one of the the wider roles in a I don't know a three four three or something like that in in the forward line. He frustrated me a bit during the last transfer uh, during the last international window. I, I sometimes, particularly with England, oh, I'm probably going to get pelters for this now. But sometimes it, 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 you just want him to. He, ta- he takes the extra touch maybe too often and, and he doesn't deliver the pass that you know he's capable of doing. And it, it may be because he's he's not surrounded by the players he's surrounded with at City and he's he's, he's on the international stage in a different team setup. But, but he's got all the talent to tear it up at the at the World Cup next month and to be very much integral to that, to that England side. And I know Gareth Southgate obviously loves Mason Mount as well, but... but I think Foden will probably give you slightly more attacking edge than 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 Mason. Mason might be slightly bit more of a worker, and and it's and that, that's not that's I'm not criticising Mason Mount in that either because I think he's a fantastic player as well, and England are very blessed in those positions. But I'd be very surprised if if Phil Foden didn't start for England. I, I imagine that front three will be Sterling, Kane, and and Foden, fitness permitting, for the the first game uh, against Iran. Well, uh, Liverpool next for City, Johnny. Jurgen Klopp already conceding the title. There's an air of hysteria around him at the moment. If we take a step back, do we have to accept the logic that no manager is unsackable? Oh, yeah, no. Yeah, we've seen enough of football, haven't we, that, that I don't think any manager is 100% safe. I, I would say Jurgen Klopp is close to unsackable, especially given his relationship with FSG, and more importantly, his relationship with the Liverpool fans, I think they're not a passive fan base, let's say. <laughs> and if they if if something bizarre was done in terms of sacking Klopp, I think there'd be more than a couple of walkouts after 20 minutes. Well, they'd be so, over the barricades, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they'd be dismantling the new stand that's already getting been put up at the moment. I think he has to be unsackable as well, or close to, because he's not just built Liverpool on the pitch, but he's he's embodied their values he's 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 been their spiritual leader as it were he's he's more than a manager Klopp but all of that is not to sort of say that he doesn't have a huge job facing him right now and possibly as big a challenge as he's ever had in his in his seven years in charge because he does face this phenomenon that's that's Manchester City and this phenomenon that's Erling Haaland and then rivals like Arsenal and Spurs and, and possibly Chelsea under Potter that are actually getting better and better at a time when he needs to transition that that squad and that team and, and has a crisis over two of his, two or three of his very best players, Trent, Salah and Van Dijk. The problems are mounting up for him and it's a, at the same time, he's he, he's in a precarious Champions League group and he's 10th in the Premier League. I mean, it's, it's probably never been worse for him than the, right at this time. And you can see that in his, his press conference lot. Mm. Johnny mentioned there, Dom, Chelsea. What's the significance of them seeming to do business very early with, with Leipzig and lining up Christopher and Kunku for next summer? Do you sense there is a plan here now being followed and it's not as random as it might have initially appeared? Well, I, I guess if you're willing to pay over the release clause in a player's contract, then it 
probably suggests that money's no object. Look, it's, it, that that may that may prove very true. They may they may be stealing a march. Well, they are stealing a march on all the competition in terms of Nkuku getting him in early as much as they can do. It's, there's a bit of long term planning there. I mean, it's not. I don't think it's. I think that's revelatory. I mean, it's not. You know, if you looked at Chelsea, the towards the end of last season, you know, when it was clear that there was plenty of issues with Lukaku over the summer when Lukaku's gone and they're sort of scrabbling around for a for a striker and end up signing Obama Yang on on what was quite a surprisingly long contract. It's very clear that, that they need some kind of long-term strategy in terms of their forwards and and Nkuku is is one of the talented young forwards on you know currently playing in the Champions League or somebody that they they feel as if they can secure although the last time they went and got a quick striker from RB Leipzig it wasn't brilliant scenario <laughs> um but the, the, this is a different type of player and different different skill set to Timo Werner there is a strategy there it shouldn't really have come as a massive surprise what happened this summer because it was all such a rush and everything happened so late the takeover's completion was so late and after all their rivals had really done all their planning and made their first moves in the market and they they couldn't do that so they it ended up being a a bit of a mad trolley dash to try and supplement the squad and and go one way and then then obviously they realized that Thomas Tuchel isn't the man to take them forward and they they put a new manager but I think behind the scenes, I think going into the next transfer window, they'll be a lot more settled and they'll they'll know their recruitment department will be more established or, you know, certainly in terms of the technical director in and the sporting director to follow. If it's, if it's not secured by January, then it'll be very, very soon after that. And then the next big window, which is next summer, if you've already got the striker in, then you can start attacking things like the midfield, which you've got N'Golo Kante and Jorginho out of contract, and you can start planning ahead in that area as well. So I don't think we'll see any lack of ambition from Chelsea in the years to come. They know they've got a, a major, major task, a game of catch-up with Manchester City in particular, and they'll have seen what's happening at Arsenal. They'll have seen that they know that Liverpool still pose a threat, you know they're watching what Tottenham are doing under under Conte. They know they have a, a level of spending that will be required for them to compete for honours at the top of the Premier League, which is what they want to be doing for the you know for the first time since 2017. They want to win that Premier League title again. So there will be a, an element of patience there. I would have thought. What's the expression? They're getting their ducks aligned. They are they are sorting it behind the scenes, and eventually they will attack that market. And you know we we may see. We'll see evidence of a very, very particular strategy aimed at uh, eroding that gap between them and the city. Mm. This is a final question, Johnny, very simple one. How far can Arsenal go? They can have a brilliant, exciting run and finish second, I think. But they could. <laughs> they should be looking at winning something. What a team they've got and what a, what a journey they're going on. They could certainly win one of those knockout competitions. And a brilliant season finishing second to Manchester City would be an incredible leap forward for that football club. I can't bring anything negative into the equation with Arsenal at the moment. They're on such a good direction. You can feel around the Emirates that it, it's one of the happiest stadiums, if not the happiest stadium in the country at the moment, because they're back in a real sense. And good luck to them, because it's enjoyable as a neutral to watch what they're doing, how they're playing. Mm, certainly is. Both Mikel Arteta last week's guest and Frank Lampard spoke eloquently about the challenges of managing the modern player. Now, Kylian Mbappe, to take a topical example, 
embodies football's excesses. He's a monster created by state sponsorship, which indulges individual ego and the cult of personality. In short, he's behaving as if he believes his brand, whatever that is, is bigger than his club and the game itself. It's why, in my opinion, Paris Saint-Germain will never win the Champions League. There's no substance, merely worthless wealth. There's a warning there for Newcastle. In that spirit, thanks to Frank for his time, and of course thanks to Dom and Johnny for their insights. Thanks also to you for your feedback. It's much appreciated. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.